Well, we are back in Luke. Some of you maybe have never known we were in Luke. But we were in Luke. When we, when we launched in March, we started in the book of Luke. We started working through um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we, in the summer, we took a break. And so we did, we talked about some of the claims of Jesus. And then in September, we talked about church life. What could that look like? And a few different parts of that. And now that it's October, we're back in Luke, in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, or if you don't, we have uh, some Bibles actually too that we'd love uh, to share with you. But uh, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, it'd be great that you could bring it and you can follow along in your own Bible. And Or if you have a Bible app, you can do that as well. That works. And Because uh, we're just going to be working through Luke, little by little. And uh, maybe it'll take us a few years to get through it all, but we're going to do it. Might pause a few times, but we're going to do it. So, um, we titled our, our sermon series for Luke. We titled it Luke for Everyone. And the reason why we did that is because Luke has this repeated and purposeful message that, that, that there is good news, and it's not just good news for certain people, it's good news for everyone. And he really, Luke, as we have looked story by story, Luke really emphasizes that, that it's not just the religious elite, or the super spiritual, in fact, maybe less so for them than it is for the poor and the broken and the destitute and the, the, the sin-addicted failures, maybe, that this is good news for. Maybe it's for the, the discouraged and the doubting. And this morning, our story really picks up on those last two, the discouraged and the doubting. As we look in uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. And before we read that, I was going to tell you uh, a story in my own life where I experienced disappointment. And um, back in the day, many years ago, my first camp invitation for me to come and speak at a camp, a kid's camp, was Keats Camp. It's on on an island, on Keats Island. And so they invited me to come and speak, and I said yes. And it was back in the day where I was crippled with arthritis, both my hips. So I was, I was in so much pain, I, could, I wasn't getting around very well, and I was having these flare-ups. And, but I agreed to go anyway. And so I went there, and I couldn't even walk around the camp very much. I could barely get down. I couldn't really get down to waterfront. So I was kind of limited, in, but I was, I was preparing and giving these talks. And while I was there, I really started feeling like and sensing that um, – I was supposed to invite the campers to pray over me. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I really wrestled all week, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know. And I had this story coming up. I was going to share the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel where he challenges the people to believe and fire falls. And I was like, yeah, maybe that's the story, and I'm going to share and invite them to pray. But I I was so terrified. So I went to the staff of the camp, and I said, guys, I really, I don't know what to do about this. And they all said, yes, let's do it. We want, we want to pray and join with you. And I said, okay. So on that certain night, we were all going to hike out to Salmon Rock, and I was going to speak out at Salmon Rock. And so I decided because we were going to pray, I was going to walk myself. And so I kind of limped out there. It's like quite a hike. And I, you got out to the rock, and the waves are crashing on the beach. And I started speaking and telling this story about God's power and his ability and that we, be- we trust and we believe. And then I invited the kids in the camp, 200 people, and they surrounded me. And the, in the, like, fading darkness, all these kids prayed over me. It was a powerful moment. 
and then nothing happened. Nothing happened. I was in so much pain, I had to get a ride back. While the kids all walked back, I had to ride in a golf cart. And they drove me back to my cabin, and I couldn't even go inside. I went out on into, the, it was dark, and I went out into this field, and I lay down in the field, and I just lay there on the grass. And I was devastated. I was shaken to the core. I felt like I went out on a limb. And I thought, wow, what a testimony. What a powerful moment for God to demonstrate for all these kids. They would see and know that God was real, and they would respond. And instead, nothing happened. And the disappointment in me was shattering. I felt like, God, if I ever thought I could hear your voice, I sure don't anymore. Because what I thought was you telling me to do that, clearly I was wrong. This kind of disappointment, this kind of struggle is what we experience. And this is what we read about, I think, in Luke chapter 7. So if you'll uh, read it with me. Luke chapter 7, verses 18. So keep in mind, we're just coming out of the story. Now, this was a while ago. We had the story where Jesus raises this woman's son from the dead. Okay, this is where we come out of. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him, all the amazing things Jesus was doing. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, um, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on, whom, and, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the story. Now, there's a whole other part, and we'll get to it next week. But I wanted to stop there because I think there's some really important things for us in this very simple, small piece of Scripture. And this is what it is. That to follow Jesus, we're going to have to let go of our expectations and faithfully trust him. To follow Jesus, we're going to have to let go of our expectations and faithfully trust him. Are you... The one. That's the question John asks. Are you the one? Now, in the Bible, I, one thing I really like about the Bible is that it's not very cleaned up. And this is one of the things historians will, will argue about why the Bible, there's, there's so much that is accurate in the Bible because, well, it's, it's all accurate, but the, why historians would, they'll argue back and forth, oh, this is true, this isn't true. Oh, we think that story was added later. And the bulk of historians will say, if they were going to fix something, they would fix all the messy parts. They would clean up the people who are the messiest. And some of them are writing about themselves. So why would they write these stories that make themselves look like foolish or failures? And I'm comforted by these stories. Big name people in the Bible, like Moses is one of those people. Moses has, he's called by God out of a burning bush. And God says, I am calling you to be the deliverer of God's people, people, people. Moses is standing there with his shoes off, and he's, it's in this amazing holy moment. And then Moses starts arguing with God. 
no, I don't think I can do that. I think maybe pick the wrong guy. I don't, I don't, I don't really talk, to talk so well. And he starts arguing, and God gets angry. That's one example. Another one is Gideon, who an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Gideon, you are going to rescue God's people and lead the army. And Gideon says, um, no, like you must have the other Gideon. I'm the smallest guy. It's not me. I, it's not me. I can't do it. And then when God says, yes, it is you, then he's like, I need to test God. And he does all these tests to try to really make sure he's, he really is not confident in God's call. Or Zechariah in the Bible, there, there's this he, a priest who goes into the whole, a holy place to make the prayers for the people, and an angel appears to him and says, Zechariah, you, God has chosen you to have a baby, even in your old age, your wife who's barren, can't have a baby, you will have a baby. And he starts being like, no, no, I, that's not going to happen. I'm old, I can't, it's not going to happen. And he gets struck mute, so he can't talk until the baby comes. Like, amazing, right? And Thomas, Thomas is another one. He follows Jesus around for years. He's with Jesus. Jesus says over and over, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Three days, three days, three, okay? Thomas gets there. Jesus dies. The disciples are devastated. And then suddenly, all the, it's a bunch of disciples coming. Thomas, Thomas, Jesus is alive. We saw him. And Thomas says, no, no, no. I won't believe. Not until I, t- I have to touch his hands and his side. Then I'll believe. And they say, no, no, Thomas, for real. No, no. I need to touch him. And then Jesus appears for Thomas later. Man, these people give me comfort in my journey and my struggle when I'm struggling through doubt or disappointment or whatever it is. And Luke gives us another one of those stories. And the person in the story is John the Baptist, the greatest prophet ever. If we looked at his resume, we would say, wow, that's an incredible resume. So let's look at his resume. What's on the resume of John the Baptist? First of all, Zechariah, who I just told you about, the angel, the old guy, that's the birth. His mother was barren. It's a miracle birth. His mother's old. His dad's old. They never had any kids their whole life. And John the Baptist is born. He's the cousin of Jesus. Who you get to be the cousin of Jesus? That's pretty, uh, that's an incredible thing. And while he's still in the womb, John the Baptist is in the womb. And his mother meets Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, and inside of her womb, John the Baptist, baby John, baby Johnny, jumps in her womb, and she feels it. And and it's like, whoa, John the Baptist, in the womb, recognizes the presence of Jesus in another womb. Like, this is pretty incredible, okay? This is John the Baptist. When he's born, he's, he's makes the Nazarite vow. So that means he's not going to cut his hair, not going to cut his beard. So it gets long and scraggly. This is John, okay? And he's not going to drink wine. He's not going to drink any. No, you don't get grape juice either. No fruit of the vine. Sorry, no Welsh's for you. Welsh's. And so, but the point of the Nazarite vow was that you were consecrating yourself to God. So John the Baptist consecrates his whole life And it's outwardly demonstrated by the long hair and the scraggly beard. And when people looked at him, they would say, you have consecrated your life to God. This is John the Baptist. He's a wild guy. He goes out and lives in the desert. And he eats honey and he wears camel clothes. And people see him and they hear about him. They say, you've got to go check out this guy. He's out in the desert. He's like wild and crazy. But he's saying amazing things. He was a prophet. And what he did was he began to call people to repentance. He called them to change their lives and repent. He said, it's not enough for you just to be okay with your life. You need to have a change in thinking. 
and you need to be baptized. And he was calling people to come and repent and be baptized. And while he was doing that, he was preparing the way. Out of all of history, John the Baptist is the one guy who gets chosen to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And as he's proclaiming to people, and he's this prophetic voice, so he doesn't even, he's no filter. He doesn't care if you're poor or if you're rich. He doesn't care if you just walked in, you're the homeless guy, or you're the king. He is going to tell you how it is. You need to repent. You need to change your life. And he's speaking to all these people, and this is what he's doing over and over and over. This is his, his mandate. And then Jesus comes along. Jesus, before he starts his ministry, before Jesus is famous and well-known, Jesus comes along, and John the Baptist says, Oh! Jesus, you're here. And Jesus says, I want to be baptized. And John says, no, I, I, I shouldn't do that. I am not even worthy to baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, I need someone to baptize me, and you're the guy. John gets to baptize Jesus. What an honor. What an incredible thing. Jesus calls John the greatest prophet ever. If anyone knew that Jesus was the Messiah, it's John. It's John. If anyone should get the MVP for being the most supportive and believing disciple person, prophet, it would be John. John would get it. John's the guy. John's the one who says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John, who's well-known, who's got this amazing ministry, when Jesus comes along and people start going to Jesus, John doesn't say, hey, what's happening to my great ministry? John says, this is what it's meant to be like. You're supposed to increase and I'm supposed to decrease. This is John. And sometimes the Bible feels almost uncomfortable when you get to some of these stories. Because I want John to be the hero. Unassailable. There he is. And then John is asking questions. Like, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? If John's not sure, who can be sure? It's John the Baptist. Now, when John sends people to go talk to Jesus, it's not because he's embarrassed, and it's not because, like kids in school, pass notes, hey, can you go tell that girl I like her? I don't want to talk to her, so can you go ask her for me? Okay, yeah, you go. This is not what's happening here. John the Baptist is sending people to go talk to Jesus because he's in prison. He's in prison. He can't get out and talk to Jesus. He's got to send people to go do it. In Luke chapter 3, 19 to 20, there's the story. Herod, so the Tetrarch, the puppet king. So the Romans had this. They set up Herod to be the king of, of Israel. He had, who had been reproved by him, by John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother's wife. So he took his brother's wife. And for all the evil things Herod had done, he added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John, remember, he's no filter, so he's saying, hey, you need to repent. And he says to King Herod, hey, you need to repent. You're sleeping with your brother's wife, and you also have done all these evil things. You need to repent. And King Herod says, I don't want to listen to this. Go to jail. But you're kind of an interesting character, so I'll keep you around in jail. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to him. And so maybe John's disappointment, maybe John's struggle stems from the fact that he's done all the right things, and yet he's in prison. He's been bold. He's been righteous. He, he's gone and he's spoken the truth, and it got him landed in jail. 
And maybe he waits for a while while he's in jail. I, I picture he's waiting, and he knows Jesus is there, and he's just starting things. Maybe Jesus is just getting warmed up. And he waits, and he watches while Jesus goes to this town and that town, healing these people and those people, preaching some sermons, discipling. Who's he discipling? Some fishermen? What? Where's the revolution? Where's the overthrow? And John waits, and he waits, and he waits. Where is God? Where is the kingdom that was promised? And maybe sometimes we encounter disappointment that's similar to this. Maybe you have, and I think if you haven't, at some point, you probably will. Disappointment, maybe that it's your best efforts that you've given and it's resulted in failure. Or maybe God didn't protect you the way you thought he was going to. Or maybe you prayed and prayed and you didn't see results to your prayers, the ones you thought you'd see. And maybe it's, it's chronic pain that you've battled or addiction that you've battled and battled and you haven't seen breakthrough yet. Or maybe you dreamed of making a difference. You thought, my life is going to look like this. And then suddenly it changed and now you're stuck in a rut somewhere. And it doesn't look at all like you pictured. Maybe you were a faithful follower and you did all the right things, but still everything is hard. Nothing's easy. And you're waiting. Why won't things get easy? What happens? What do you do when things fall apart? When they crumble? When it's your ideals or your dreams or your high bar? You, you pictured it would look like this and then it all crumbles down. What do you do then? What do you do when you fail or when people fail you or when it seems like God has failed you? What do you do? Jesus, I think, invites the question that you can bring your question to him. You can ask him the question. You can look him in the face in your heart. Look him in the face and bring your deepest heart doubt, your deepest struggle, and you can bring it before him, your midnight wrestle, and you can place it before him. And you can meet him in it. Psalm 143 verse 8 says, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. And I think when John brings the question, it is, a, it is an act of trust to go to Jesus and say, I don't know what you're doing. But he goes and he says, I want to understand I don't understand, but I want to understand. So I'm coming to you about it. And Jesus has an answer. Tell me what you see. Um, this week, I was sitting in Mayel, my five-year-old, came and sat on the bed. And uh, she was sitting there, and she's, I was working on something. She said, Dad, how do you know God is real? And I was like, oh, this is a good one, good question. And so I was like, well, you know, the Bible tells me, and I've experienced God in my life, and I've seen him working in all these different ways. And I gave this dad pastory answer, probably. And she's like, okay, yeah, but you won't actually know till you stand in front of him when you die, right? And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I'll know then. But, I mean, I know now. I'm very confident now that I know God is real. And she's like, okay, but yeah, but you know, you, when you really, you really will know when you stand there. And then you'll see him or you won't see him, right? I was like, man, okay, like, this is hard. 
And then I said, well, you know, like, are you wanting to know if I can prove if God is real? Because I don't, that's a difficult thing to prove that God is real. But, you know, and then you can talk about the wind or different pictures in life where you can see it moving, but you don't actually see the thing. And so we had this whole conversation. It got me thinking about it. It, uh, That how do I know? What meets me in my doubt when I struggle? And I think this answer, tell me what you see, is part of it. See, when John brings this question to Jesus, it's, it's chock full of expectation. When John comes to Jesus, his question is loaded with expectation. I know this because in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, this is what it says. As the people were in expectation, as all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ— John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whom sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Just picture the scraggly beard guy saying this. Unquenchable fire. The Christ was going to clear the threshing floor. Yeah, the Christ was going to gather the wheat into his barn. The Christ was going to burn with fire, unquenchable fire. We all know who he's going to burn. The Romans. Yes. Finally. Like, this is a really vivid picture. So when John is thinking about his picture, about what the Christ is going to do, and he looks out at Jesus through the bars of his window, He's like, maybe there's a mistake. Did I get this wrong? This is not at all what I pictured. This isn't happening the way I thought it would. And Jesus answers in the Jesus answer. I love Jesus answers. These people all the time, they come to Jesus, they try to trick Jesus, and Jesus gives them some weird answer. And it always is like, woo, gotcha. And here too, they they come, they say, are you the one or is it someone else? And then Jesus I would have just been like, yes, I'm the one. What are you doubting for? Come on. What's your problem? You're supposed to be preparing the way, John. Jesus doesn't do that. He's like, just wait. He just waits. He's like, come over here. Yeah, just stay here for a few minutes. And then he goes around and he heals people. And he demonstrates. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on those who are blind, he restored sight. And he answered them, tell John what you've seen and heard. So while you're standing here and I did all this stuff, go tell him that. Tell him the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. I love the hour. I love that Jesus takes a minute. He doesn't just give an answer. He says, come and see. Come and see what I'm doing. And so when he says to them, what do you see? Or he's saying to John, what do you see? What do you see happening? He's not asking him, what do you want? Or what were you hoping for? Or what did you imagine? Or what did you expect? He says, what do you see? And when they look, what are you doing, actually? Jesus says, I'm bringing jubilee. I'm setting people free. I'm bringing healing and restoration and redemption. So stop seeing with your expectation and start looking at what's here, what's happening. The kingdom is here, just not in the way you expect it. And I think for us, too, this is a shattering revelation for our hearts that God is always working. God is always working. 
He's always working. Always. A few years ago, after my surgery, I was asked to speak at a conference. So I went and I did the first night. We had the worship and we did the spe- I did the speaking. And afterwards, one of the girls on the worship team came up to me and she said, hey, do you remember me? My name is Anna. And I was like, oh, yeah. And Lauren came over and she knew her. I was like, okay, good. I don't remember at all. My horrible memory. And uh, smile and nod. <laughs> and, um, and then so we were talking and then she said, yeah, yeah. Um, I was at Keats when you spoke there. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And she said, yeah, how are your hips? And I said, oh, yeah, well, I got surgery. So they're better, way better now that I had surgery. And she's like, yeah, remember when, you pray- when we prayed? And I was like, <gasps> I felt suddenly sick. I was like, oh, I blocked it out. Ugh, you're going to remind me. And I said, oh, yeah, I feel really bad about that. Like, I hope no one was misled by my delusions of prayer grandeur. How I thought I'd do this thing. And she was like, oh, no. She's like, that night? That was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences of my life. And I was like, you know I didn't get healed, right? (laughs) Were you at the same night I was at? Because nothing happened at the night I was at. Do you remember that? She said, oh, no. It wasn't about that. It was for me. She said, oh, it wasn't about that. It was that we could go to God and ask for impossible things. What happened in my faith life changed me. Someone else's greatest spiritual experience, one of their greatest spiritual experiences, was one of my most disappointing. I was heartbroken, devastated, and here God is doing something in all these other people, and I walk off thinking nothing has happened, forgetting that God is always working. God wasn't doing what I thought he should do. He was doing what he planned to do. What he needed was for me to be obedient, and to trust him. Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And there's something we have to understand, that God is doing things we can't see or understand, and very once in a while, occasionally, in his grace, he shows us what he was doing. I could go my whole life and never hear that other side of the story. And I will have to trust that God was doing something. Thankfully, I'm so grateful to God. I got to hear that part of it. And now I see that story differently. That's why, for us as Christians, as people who follow God, that the question why to God is not a productive question. It's a normal human question. We ask God when things happen. We say, why? Why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? Why is this happening? But why is not a productive question with God? And you'll find that if you ask him. He doesn't answer it. The question that we need to learn is what? What are you doing? What are you doing? How are you going to make good come of this? Because you are always working. So how? What what are you doing? Show me what you're doing. I want to see it. And we know that in this, God is not asking of us something he's not done himself. And we know that because we could look at the cross the story of the cross is the example of this. That, that we could look at the cross and say, wow, well, that's so great. Yeah, we know the other side of it. But John Shea will say this. One brutal historical fact remains. Jesus is mercilessly nailed to the cross, and despite the Matthian boast, Matthew's boast, 12 legions of angels did not save him in that hour. 
No cop-out redemption theories that say God wanted it that way explain the lonely and unvisited death of Jesus. This side of the grave, Jesus is left totally invalidated by the Lord of heaven and earth. Trust, this is what he says, trust does not presume God will intervene. Because when we look at the cross and we enter into the story, it's brutal and dark and there's suffering and there's pain. And Jesus goes through it all for the joy set before him. Because he knows that God is always at work. And in fact, the greatest triumph in history at the cross when Jesus died and rose again to set all of us free, he had to endure pain and suffering and go through the darkness to see the other side. So what do I see when I look at it? A decisive blow to death and to sin. A beautiful sacrifice. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us. And so Jesus walked through the pain of the cross. And Jesus offers us a choice to be blessed or to be offended. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. He says, For the power, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It could be folly or it could be the power of God. So what is the thing that we would say, well, what is the message that is either folly or its power? What is this message? What is this thing that we're, the good news thing we're talking about? It's this. That God loves you. That God has always loved you. He knows you by name, and he chose you, and he loves you. And secondly, that you will never be good enough to earn this or to make your way to heaven on your own. You can never do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff you've done. Somehow to, oh, if I can even it out, it'll be okay. You can't ever do that. It's just, have you done anything bad? Yes, then you're disqualified. But Jesus gave his life in death and resurrection so that he could erase those things we've done and that we could walk boldly into the throne under the blood of Jesus, under his covering, under his sacrifice, so that we could be, we would be seen as totally pure and holy before the living God. And Jesus offers his spirit to come and live in us. So we're not just set free in a moment. He offers his spirit to come and change us day by day by day that we could become more like him. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, wow, that's good news. Who would ever find that offensive? How could, how could that be offensive? Even if I don't totally believe it or I'm still struggling with it, like, it's not really offensive. And to answer that, I'll tell you a story Jesus told. He tells the story of a vineyard owner who has all these grapes that need picking. It's harvest time. And so the vineyard owner goes out to the city, and he goes and he goes to this first group of workers, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to hire all of you to come and pick grapes in my vineyard for $200 a day. Can you come and work for a day, and I'll pay $200? And everyone says, yes, yes, that's awesome. Okay. And so they come and start picking grapes. And by midday, the owner looks out and is like, well, they're not picking very fast. So I still have lots of grapes. I need more people. So he goes out, and he goes to another part of town, and he gets some more people say, hey, will you come and work in my vineyard and pick grapes? And everyone says, yes, yes, okay, cool, awesome, great. Okay, and he looks out again. There's only like an hour or two left of, of, 
a picking time, but he realizes there's still lots of grapes. And so he goes out to a third group and he goes and says, hey, just for a little bit, will you come and pick um, grapes in my vineyard? Will you come and help me? And they say, yeah, okay, sure, we hire you. Okay, and he hires them. And then the end of the day comes. So it's not very long after they started working. And so he gets everyone together and he says, okay, it's time to pay you. So we'll start with this group. And he goes over and he says, all right, I hired you for a day's work, so here's $200 each. So as soon as he does that, what are you guys thinking? Yes, they worked for like an hour and got $200. What are we going to get? And then he goes to the next group and he says, all right, so I hired you for the day, so I'm going to pay you for a day's wage, $200. There you go. All right, and thank you so much for working all day for me. I'm going to pay you the wage that we set out, which is $200. Thank you so much. And as soon as he does that, who starts grumbling? You guys, you ungrateful group. No. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you end up being that group? The, the group that worked all day. They're the ones who are unhappy, and they say, that's not fair. That's not fair. We worked for a whole day, and the $200, they worked for one hour. And the, the vineyard owner responds this way. He says, am I not allowed to be generous? can't I hire people and pay them what I, what I want to? I hired you and paid you what I agreed upon. If I want to be generous with them, isn't that my, my prerogative, my choice? And he says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. And the takeaway for us is, the longer you've been here, the harder it is for you. The longer you've been here in the church, part of things, working away, the easier it is for you to be offended. The easier it is for you to be offended. If you just came in and you experience grace and it changes you, you're the last minute hire and you come in and you say, oh, this is incredible. That's, those are the people who this is good news for. It's good news for the blind and the lame who are invited to the wedding feast. And it's good news for the sick who need a doctor. And it's good news for the prodigal son who comes home and gets a feast. Less so for those who think they're amassing credits and earning favor with God. And they're slaving away like the older son in the story. Trying to earn the father's love. They're the ones who are offended. The question comes, who are you? Who are you? Because I think all of us, in a way, are the last-minute hire. We all need grace. We all need it. Jesus invites a response. He says, will you trust me or will you be offended? Will you lay down your expectations or, and, and take hold of grace? Or will you walk in something else? And I think when Jesus does that, he's inviting us to choose him. Not what he can do for us, not how he can make us happy, not how he can obey our whims or do what we want, but we have to embrace him and him alone. Aside from what he could do for us, but who he is. Philippians 3, 7 and 8 says it this way. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul would say, to know Jesus. Once I realized that knowing Jesus was the prize, everything else, everything else, the good, the bad, the up, the down, it's all like a loss. It's all garbage compared to knowing him. And trust 
does not presume that God will intervene. And we know this in the story of John the Baptist. To be a spoiler alert, John doesn't get out of prison. He gets his head cut off. That's how he dies. He gets his head cut off because of some weird whim from Herod's stepdaughter niece that he has some weird sexual thing for, and she asks him to cut off his head, and he does. Just like that. John doesn't get an angel who comes in and unlocks the door and lets him out, and the guards don't see him, and he walks away. John doesn't get that. The greatest prophet ever. And like John, I think some of us will need to trust through our circumstance. We might not get the breakthrough we, we, we thought we'd get. We might, it might not happen the way we expected, but we will need to trust through it as we walk step by step. Kingdom victory is not always measured in euphoric mountaintop breakthrough experience. A lot of time it's measured in faithful trust, step by step. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to trust you because your character is good. I'm going to hold on to the goodness of the Lord. And if you're not sure if that's the story, look at the church, early church martyrs. Man, they raised people from the dead. They saw Jesus resurrected. They saw people healed and transformed. They got out of prison by angelic keys, unlocked the door. And then they were crucified upside down and torn in half and fed to lions. These people went through it. Faithful trust, walking. So how do we live unoffended with Jesus <laughs> or with what's happening? I think the answer is that um, to be unoffended by the gospel, the good news is to be saved by it. That when we walk into it, when we experience it in our lives, it changes us. As we enter the blessing in trust, we acknowledge our continual efforts to try to save ourselves, our continual efforts to do something that's going to earn us our way. We acknowledge, I can't save myself. I can't make myself better in God's sight. It's our failure to live in grace, to walk in grace, to offer grace to one another. We failed in so many ways in this. And we acknowledge that Jesus He's the one with the ability to rescue and redeem us. He has at the cross. And he continues to do that in our lives, to transform us and to set us free. And when we see him and his goodness, we're able to continue to walk forward. We invite his presence to come and live in. Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. I'm knocking at the door. Will you open the door to me? Let my spirit come in and change you and transform you. Bring about the fruitfulness you're looking for in your life. This is the story. This is the offer. You get to choose. So in conclusion, to follow Jesus, we must let go of our expectations and faithfully trust him. I want to pray, and then I'd like us to, to um, respond by taking a few moments together, but I'll pray first. God, I thank you that um, you are good. And you are loving and you are faithful, even when we haven't been faithful, even when we've been up and down, that you are faithful. And there's things about your character that we know to be true. And those things about you hold us in those moments when um, circumstances would, would say something different, when uh, we experience discouragement or disappointment 
or despair or we come to a place where there's no hope and we're struggling. God, we desperately need you in those moments to meet us and to show us what you're doing. We invite you, I invite you, God, to come and to show us what you're doing for each person who might be struggling this morning, that you would come and you would give us a little window into what you're doing, how much you love us, and how present you are in our situation. And God, I thank you that um, there's an invitation that um, we can walk away offended by you, by things you say and do. We can be offended by the good news, by this message, by your generosity, but that there's also an offer for us to come in and enter in to be saved, to, to experience transformation in it, to see you and to know you, and in doing that, that we would be transformed. And actually, our circumstances would have very little to do with that, that we could have, as Paul would say, good times and bad times, content in the good and the bad because of who you are and how we know you. Thank you, God. Amen.